This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change. We're here on uh, Zoom today, although you're, you're going to hear this uh, conversation uh, on audio only, but I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall. Our third host, Jeff uh, Klein, is off today. I want to remind everybody that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. Uh, before we bring our guest into our conversation, and I want to do what we always do, which is just uh, to warm up a little bit on the week that was and the week ahead. And I know we're all looking at, at uh, a couple of holidays, Thanksgiving and then the uh, end of the year holidays. So just a, a thought on your part on how you're going to celebrate the holidays coming up. Uh, in light of COVID-19? There's my question. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, Well, you know that you and I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Rachel Levine, the Secretary of Health for the state of Pennsylvania. And that was such an informative uh, interview talking about containment and mitigation and prevention through the vaccine And her words to the wise over the holiday season, uh, she said to hunker down (laughs) and stay with your immediate family, uh, keep travel to an absolute minimum. So Mike, uh, I'm gonna be a good citizen. I'm hunkering down with my husband and uh, two sons who are local right here. And we're gonna have have Thanksgiving, a modest Thanksgiving. I'm gonna cook a turkey (laughs) and just enjoy, you know, enjoy the, the, the moment. Excellent. How about you, Mike? And excellent behavior. I, I'll just point out that uh, from our conversation with uh, Rachel Levine, we, we learned a lot and she's been a lot in the news in this, uh, well, we call it the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as we just announced a basically stay at home kind of um, regime. And it speaks to the power of tenor at the top. So hard to enforce any of the rules or any of the provisions that the state has just uh, issued. But having said that, uh, the power of the pulpit is strong. We respect it. And uh, it's one way in which, in fact, it's maybe the typical way in which leadership is uh, exercised uh, in, in states and cities and certainly in companies as well, which brings me to our guest, Anne. Uh, Pierre Genton, great to have you on our program today. Thanks so much for having me. Here, I'm just going to offer a couple words about uh, where you are now. You've had a long and distinguished uh, career. Uh, since 2019, recently, you have been serving as the uh, general counsel for McKinsey and Company, the very large consulting firm. Last time I looked, Pierre, correct me if I'm way off, something like 30,000 employees worldwide, offices around the world. Famous, of course, for the involvement of McKinsey with public agencies and and private companies thinking through their strategy. Uh, Sometimes they're restructuring and well beyond. You're an attorney. You worked for a a very um, large law firm for quite some time. You uh, worked with the Credit uh, Suisse uh, for a number of years as well. Uh, And thus you bring an experience as a 
attorney, uh, general counsel, but also as a practicing manager and executive in a, in a variety of settings. So great to have you on the program. Thanks again. So Pierre, just uh, to jump into the here and now, I note that you are serving on the McKinsey Board of Directors Risk Audit and Governance Committee. So just to pick up uh, on <laughs> what's no doubt much on your mind, certainly on the, the mind of many partners at McKinsey, and that is risk management in the current circumstance. Uncertainty is high, risks are great. So if you could just talk a bit about your service on the board and how your risk and audit committee of, of the board has been helping the company think through how to respond and how to work through the, the COVID-19 events that we're too familiar with now. So Pierre, over to you. Look, I think the uh, risk management is a part of every company's uh, ordinary course oversight. Uh, obviously every, uh, every company thinks about the, the risks that it's facing and, and how to tackle those in a, in a strong and responsible way. Um, I think the thing that's unique about COVID is it's really blown up uh, a lot of the paradigms. Uh, you know, um, I was reflecting in the recent uh, Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. There's a there's a prayer that you say called the Unatana Tokef in Hebrew, and it's a uh, it's a prayer that reflects on the various ways that uh, um, people live and people will die. It's part of the human condition. One of the the uh, one of the comments that the prayer makes is, you know, who's going to die by drowning and who's going to die by sword and who's going to die by plague. And uh, it, it was interesting, you, you, you know, in years past, I've thought of that prayer and thought about the ancient quality of that prayer uh, in the sense of who dies by plague nowadays. It sounds like a very ancient uh, type of, of concern. Uh, and of course, now we're living in an era where we are seeing a pandemic, something that I think none of us ever imagined in our lifetimes we'd experience some, a word even, pandemic that comes out of the history books. So I think um, on one level, we're dealing with a, uh, with a risk factor that is qualitatively different, a shutdown of societies, a shutdown of economies. And that obviously uh, has, uh, has posed challenges to all companies. Uh, uh, in terms of remote working, in terms of not having access to clients, in terms of clients themselves facing unprecedented challenges. Um, and I think um, a lot of what our uh, concern has been at McKinsey has been making sure that our people uh, are supported uh, in every respect, whether it's uh, their well-being, uh, their state of mind, the resources that they need uh, to stay well and to serve our clients, and also, of course, a, a preeminent focus on clients themselves. How can we ensure that our clients are not uh, disadvantaged and, and really put in a, in, a, in a perilous position by this awful pandemic? Uh, and I think that what has been a silver lining uh, for us, and I would say for, for many businesses, has been the the fact that the professionalism and the desire to serve clients has, um, has found expression in an extraordinarily new and different environment. And uh, the ability to help people has not missed a beat. So I, I think there is a, there's a very powerful positive set of business conclusions that come out of this COVID uh, experience, which of course, uh, in essence, has been very tragic and very difficult. Thank you on that. Uh, let me stay with that for a minute more in that uh, guests that Ann and I have had on the program in the past 
have often sounded the very, uh, the very same theme. The number one concern in a crisis like this is the health and safety of the employees, uh, health and safety of, of your clients as well. Uh, taking that as a given, what, what would be the number two concern? So health and safety, number one uh, topic to uh, focus on risk management. What would be the second area that uh, you uh, on the board and you as a member of the McKinsey Senior Leadership Team would be most concerned about? Well, I think the second concerns, I mean, as you rightly point out, uh, Mike, the, the, the initial concern is, is people's well-being, uh, yeah. stable, stabilization of the situation so that, that organizations can continue to, to operate in a sound way. I think the next step is what are the implications? What are the medium and long-term implications yeah. for ourselves as a firm, for our clients? Um, what, are the, uh, what are the things that we need to focus on? What are the capabilities we need to develop? What are the ideas that we need to develop? Uh, what is the world going to look like? What are the services and products that are going to become important that perhaps were less important before? How do we, uh, how do we take the lessons of this experience and not lose them? Uh, we've, had a, we've had a historic opportunity to uh, almost live an experiment from a business standpoint. And what are, the, what are the implications of that? I think it would be a great missed opportunity if we simply reverted back to normal, quote unquote, uh, uh, you know, the status quo ante. Uh, and I think there are some profound uh, observations that we can take from this experience, not just operationally in terms of businesses, but also in terms of our own personal understanding of balance and the value of time uh, and, and other, other approach issues that I think can be quite compelling for the future. That's great. And let's bring you in. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, uh, Pierre. It's really a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you. I so appreciate your comment about lessons learned. And uh, for example, if I think about my own work, if you had told me this time last year that I would be leading and facilitating a class of 598 students virtually, <laughs> I would have said, how is that possible? This is an experiential hands-on class. How do we do it? But we have, we have done it. We have gone, uh, we have gone virtual and I now know that we are not going back entirely, even when we're in person, there are lessons learned. So I'm wondering what, if there's a particular lesson that stands out that you could speak to. I, I, think, I think the overarching lesson, uh, which is again, a, a facet of human experience is the extent to which uh, so many of us were engaged in, for want of a better word, I would say automatic behavior. Uh, you know, getting on the getting on the train, going to the meeting, doing the this, doing the that sort of behaviors that that sort of had organically accreted over the years. And I think what's fascinating in talking to CEOs and other senior business leaders is with all of the challenge of the past year, and the challenge has been very considerable. There have also been moments of real insight that would not have been possible had that automatic uh, behavior continued uh, along. I had one CEO say to me, I thought it was very interesting that uh, being, being remote from his office allowed him to clear his calendar. Hmm. And he found that his calendar then was populated with the meetings that actually needed to happen and the issues that actually needed to be tackled. He didn't have people populating his calendar with all sorts of extraneous meetings and lunches and what have you, simply in order to be sure that he was, quote unquote, busy. He actually had a stripped down calendar that allowed him to 
focus on what was truly essential and that built in time for him to reflect and time for him to consider options and uh, uh, things for the future that he might not have had the mental space uh, in his in his previous way of operating. So I, I think that's quite inspiring uh, that with all the, the, the challenge of the COVID experience, which none of us will remember fondly, um, there are some there are some wake up calls and there's some shaking up, shaking up of our routines that I think will lead us to uh, to different kinds of opportunity and different kinds of effectiveness going forward. Very good. And Mike, do I have time in. for one more or do you need well, to break in? Well, let me in? break in and we'll come back to you. I just, uh, Pierre and Anne, need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usim. I'm here with Anne Greenhall. And we are in active discussion with Pierre Genton, Global General Counsel for McKinsey and Company. Anne, back to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, Pierre, one follow-up. And yes, I so appreciate your comment. We have opportunity to have insights that we might not otherwise have had. I myself now not commuting daily have about an hour at the end of my day that I see as found time. (laughs) And what I'm trying to do is to hang on to that time and use it in uh, a way that is restorative. So I've actually, Mike, you don't know this, but I'll share here on on the radio that I've gone back after quite a hiatus to writing poetry during that hour. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if you have had a similar experience for yourself, if there's something that you're doing with the found time that you may have. Well, for me, um, it's a few things, absolutely, because uh, being, you know, I've been home essentially for uh, since March, uh, with with very with very few exceptions, uh, I find a few things really helpful. Um, uh, I love to play music, uh, and that was something that I would do, you know, late in the evenings when I came home from work. Now, if I have a, a spot in during the day uh, to pick up my guitar or sit down at the piano, um, I find that really a, a a wonderful, wonderful way of clearing my head. And also, solutions occur to you. Uh, in a strange way, when you take your mind off actively thinking about a problem and you turn to another activity, somehow the way your mind works, uh, ideas begin to occur to you. Um, the other thing that I've found very useful, and I think a lot of us have, is just going outside. Um, we we realize how little we actually appreciated nature and how little we appreciated simple things like the change of seasons and watching the leaves fall, watching the flowers bloom, uh, watching the world in the summertime. You know, when you take that half an hour and, and, and go for a walk, um, you, you think in a different way. You're hearing different things. So, uh, again, I think these are all these are all great um opportunities that this experience has has given us with the extra time as you as you point out Anne. yes thank you mike back to you so pierre i'm going to stay on the same topic by noting that among the many things that you do including playing the guitar mm-hmm. you're one of our instructors here at the wharton school and you've been teaching uh, what we term legal studies 612 responsibility in business and just on a purely personal note i used to teach the course myself Love the course. It's a six-session focus required of all students here in the MBA program, and you've been doing that. So that's again something very different from your 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 day job, so to speak. So just kind of a personal question: what what brought you into, on top of a long day to begin with, and some guitar playing during the day or maybe the <laughs> evening? 
What what brought you into taking on a teaching role as well? I've always taught, uh, Mike, uh, alongside my day job. Um, always loved, loved the university environment. Uh, before I became a lawyer, I thought seriously about becoming an academic. Uh, and I've always loved the university environment, law schools, business schools, the undergraduate um, engagement with students. I find it enormously fulfilling and inspiring and, an, again, an opportunity to learn. Uh, I certainly learn as much, if not more, from uh, the students than they learn from me. Um, what I did with the Wharton course uh, is really view it as an opportunity to integrate a lot of different inputs uh, for people who are going to be the business leaders of tomorrow. And, and the, the course is really designed, I would say, to address three questions that I've, I've been mulling over myself for many years and ultimately sort of brought it together in an academic format. The first question is, what is the personal framework of values that you will use to navigate the business dilemmas that you will inevitably face. The second is, how will you identify and cultivate the cabinet of advisors that you will turn to throughout your professional life to guide you? And the third is, how will you integrate the lessons of life experience so that you don't just get older and say, boy, I'm glad I dodged that bullet, but you look at experience as an opportunity to say, how can I learn from that? So I become a a more effective business person, and frankly, how, how I can become a greater individual, greater human being over time. That's what the course is about, and it's really a multidisciplinary course. I, I bring in, and I teach the course with a, an old friend of mine, bring in um, uh, poetry, uh, music, uh, uh, bring in law and economics texts, philosophical texts. We do, we do about a few dozen hypotheticals, real real world business hypotheticals. We engage the students in terms of dilemmas that they themselves have worked through, what they learned about it. And the, the, the real essence of the conclusion that we're trying to get people to is if you want success in life and you're bright and you're hardworking, you're talented, you very likely will achieve that success. But what is the success that you're trying to achieve? You can achieve success and leave a trail of destruction in your wake, or you can achieve success where you're lifting up other people and are truly somebody that you'll be proud of at the end of the day. And, and it's really waking up those questions in our students and helping them think through what some of those choices may look like over time. It's a, it's a very exciting experience to teach at Warden. So Pierre, I've got uh, one follow-up and then uh, Anne will jump back in. And that is, Anne and I are often hit with the question, it's a very good question, can you really teach leadership? And we've got an answer to that. And an even tougher question in a sense, and I had it when I taught the course myself, can you really teach ethics and integrity? So just picking up on that, um, how, how do you respond to that uh, question? I'm sure you've heard it. Can you really teach leadership? Can you really teach ethics? I, I think you can. I, I think you can. And I, I think it's it, 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 these, these disciplines really involve two things. I think one is they involve the, the human being, the person, the student, looking within themselves and looking at their own personality and looking at how they can be effective and how they can uh, embrace these values just as they embrace other values that are important to them. And, and it has to be owned. It has to be personally embedded in, 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 a, in a person. So I think one element is really lighting people up, you know, penetrating to a place where they really become personally engaged in the topic. The second is, is being mindful. Being mindful about your behaviors, being mindful about your words, being mindful about your choices. 
one of the things that we talk about, and, and it, it occurs in religious philosophy and it occurs in, in existential philosophy, is really the idea of defining yourself by choosing. Not what you say, uh, not what you say you'd like to have done, but what do you actually choose? That's who, that's what defines you, and that's what people actually see in you. So it's being mindful about the fact that, that every day, everything you say, every person you interact with, every business decision you make is a definition, is a self-definitional uh, act. And I think when you, when you start to think in those terms, you realize the power that you have in defining your own life, and it, 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 it augurs a certain type of responsibility. Great, thank you very much on that. I'm really recording what you're saying because uh, as I said, Ann and I are often that question, uh, asked that question and your thoughts on that, very, very helpful, uh, certainly for me and I'm sure Ann too. So Ann, with a couple of minutes to go before a station break, why don't yes. you jump in? All right, yes, and again, Pierre, all you're saying is resonating. I told my students yesterday that in class that really what I was asking them to do was to read the text of their own lives and to stop, pause, think, and reflect, and to be mindful of choosing, because they can write the ending. <laughs> so I'd just like to ask you on the, I, how do you get your students to reflect? I think you do it uh, at least in two ways that, that come to mind right away, Anne. Uh, one is to expose them to the incredible richness of uh, human tradition. Uh, we've got thousands of years of of wisdom accumulated in human experience in, uh, in philosophy, in our religious traditions, in our humanistic traditions, in the arts, in music, in culture, uh, in, in literature. And I think that there are a lot of really bright and extraordinarily accomplished students who've, who, who haven't had a lot of exposure to that world. The idea that there are human beings in this world who are spending their time doing nothing but actually perfecting their own souls and their own behaviors so that they can actually live the life they're leading, that's, that's, a, that's a new thought uh, for people uh, often in business schools. And, and I think exposing them, once they've had some exposure to Shakespeare, to Bob Dylan, to George Harrison, to Robert Johnson, they suddenly realize, you know what, there's a bigger world out there than the quantitative stuff that I've spent so much time perfecting. So I think that's one dimension. The second is to uh, help people realize that if they think back to their own lives, uh, there are important moments that they, not, they may not have sufficiently reflected on. And I'll just conclude with this. You know, One of the things we do in the course is we ask students to talk about their own dilemmas. One of the interesting things that occurs year after year when we ask that question is students who talk about the fact that they, in their professional ambitions in their lives, they took jobs uh, abroad before business school. They were in Singapore, they were in Hong Kong, they were in Paris, wherever they were. And they were very, very focused on building their career. And these are young people in their mid-20s. And, and invariably, they talk about the fact that during this time frame, a grandparent died who they really loved. And they suddenly reflected on the fact that they hadn't made the time for that person. Um, and they regret it profoundly. And so helping people tap into moments where they actually had lessons learned and helping them derive the practical operational takeaways for the future, I think is another way to address the question that you've asked. Oh, that's great, thank you. So Pierre, we got about uh, literally two minutes here before we do take a break. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and ask you 
about your, your, your major professional role now as general counsel for McKinsey. And just uh, with uh, literally about a minute and a half to go before our temporary break here, how would you describe the role of the general counsel, whether for McKinsey or Credit Suisse or uh, any major enterprise? What, what is your job? I think it's a threefold uh, job, Mike. I, I think the first job is uh, to help our business succeed, to help our professionals succeed. So um, whether it's in a bank, whether it's in a consulting firm, whether it's in another type of company, uh, the company has a strategy, the company has business goals, and the role of the general counsel is to ensure that those uh, business people whom we support are uh, effectuating their uh, objectives with our strong professional support. So client service, responsiveness, professional excellence, accuracy, integrity, those are the traits of great lawyering and those are the traits that we absolutely have to bring to bear in the support of our business people and in the support of the firm. The second goal is uh, I would call risk-mindedness and risk management. Um, we have to be thoughtful, we have to be compliant with law, we have to be responsible, we have to think through the implications of what we're doing. Uh, and that's a very, very important component of being a world-class professional. And the third is what I call thought partnership. My own concept of being a general counsel and certainly what I, what I advise my own team at McKinsey is that we wanna be strategic thought partners at all levels of the organization for our colleagues because lawyers don't just bring technical legal skills. They also bring life experience and professional experience and a, a way of looking at the world that's distinct from the way business people do. So I think those are the three aspirations that, that I have and, and that, I would, uh, that I've tried to develop in my own team. Uh, we are, of course, Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, and we're in an active discussion with Pierre Genton, who is Global General Counsel for McKinsey and Company. And I should add, he's also been teaching a class for us, for our MBA students in business ethics here at the school. So Pierre, welcome back. I'm gonna um, ask you to just think about your role as a leader of McKinsey. Uh, by definition, you're uh, on the, uh, the top team there. You, you set the tone for the enterprise. And just thinking about your own role as a leader of McKinsey, indirectly, you're leading many clients, if not directly as well. What are the most important elements of leadership that you need to bring every day when you come to work to ensure McKinsey is on the path it ought to be taking and your clients are as well? So just to sharpen that question, what's most important as you serve as one of the several top leaders of McKinsey and Company? I think that uh, there are a few things uh, that one has to, uh, has to do at the same time, Mike, um, in terms of every day. I, I think one thing, it's, it's often said, but it's absolutely true, is, is, is listening. Um, listening. I, I think so much of really understanding people needs of clients is is listening uh, oftentimes uh, professionals will have their own agenda they'll have their own perspective they'll have their own experience that they want to bring to bear and sort of lay as a template on top of what the client is saying uh, uh, and one has to listen uh, because it's through listening that you'll realize that uh, and we see this in our personal lives we see this in our professional lives uh, what the person may feel is front of mind and may feel is, is the thing they're most focused on is actually not. 
And by listening to them, by letting them express themselves, you realize, in fact, there are other things uh, that are deeper things that they're actually concerned about. And they may be actually focused on what is more of a symptom than a root cause of their concerns. And that only comes out by listening and by picking up words and, and phrases and, and tone. So I think listening is awfully important, whether it's with clients, whether it's a member of one's own team. Uh, that's, one, that's one thing I'd point to. Um, the second thing I would point to is balance. Uh, a lot of, to me, what being a counselor involves is balance. It's balance in so many ways, balance in terms of sequencing. Uh, what do we want to do now and what do we want to do later? What do we want to be uh, forward-looking on now and what do we want to be more conservative on right now? The, all of these different factors and values have to be balanced. My father once gave me some advice that, that has so uh, been helpful to me over the years. Uh, I was talking about a problem with him uh, that I felt was very intractable, and I was wondering why uh, we weren't doing more about it, why we weren't being more proactive, because there didn't seem to be any solution, uh, an issue that we were just thinking through in the family. And uh, he said to me, and he's been a retired doctor for many years, he said, you know, Pierre, uh, one thing I've learned in medicine is sometimes when you're facing an intractable problem, the best solution is to wait for the problem to change. Because when the problem changes, you might find a very ready solution. And if you try to jam a solution into an intractable problem, you're just going to make things worse. That's the kind of, of, of advice that goes to balance. Sometimes being driven and proactive is not the right move when you're tactic, tackling a particular problem. And the third thing, I think, is, is not losing the concept of aspiration and boldness. You, you want to be balanced, but you don't want to be balanced in a way that takes away the entrepreneurship and takes away the, the bold aspirations. The course that we teach at Wharton has actually got a, a sort of a, we give it the name, uh, Aiming High in Business and in Life. And it's, it's a riff from Thoreau, actually from Walden. In Walden, Thoreau says, man most often hits what he aims at. Therefore, though he should fail immediately, he ought aim at something high. And I do think that you don't want to lose that sense of how can we make the most of this? How can we aspire to greatness in what we're trying to do? That's great. And jump in. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm going to follow your lead here, Mike, and ask uh, again about here how you uh, embody your role. At, in the first half of the hour, you talked about your course and how you ask students to consider their personal values, to think about how they what advisors they would put around them, and also to think about how they would integrate life's lessons moving forward. So I'd just like to ask you, and it's always hard to practice what we preach, I know that firsthand, but what values, advisors, and life lessons have you, do you bring to the role? Well, I would say, I mean, each one of us perhaps, uh, you know, Obviously, so those are very personal uh, uh, questions in terms of each one of us has a different way of answering that. Um, look, from a values perspective, uh, I would say my values are, are kind of a blend of things. On the one hand, I'm a, an Orthodox Jew. I'm a very, uh, I'm a deeply religious person. Uh, and I find that uh, uh, my religious life is, is just fundamental to the inspiration that I feel about the world and the love that I have for human beings. I just think that gratitude, which I view, I view as a core religious value, is the animating thing that uh, certainly I try to tap into every day. Uh, when you think about the incredible gift that we have to be alive, uh, to have our senses, to have our memory, 
uh, to be able to uh, operate in the world. Uh, it's just a, a gift that is beyond description and that's before we get out of bed. So um, I, I think that's one element of my values. Uh, the other is, again, I'm a believer in multiple inputs. Um, uh, what we can learn from all cultures, from other people, from music, from art, from, uh, from just being mindful and open. I, I think there's tremendous uh, ways in which we can continue to evolve and grow as human beings. In terms of, uh, of mentors and, and, and uh, I, I, look, I, I don't have a fixed thing of this person or that person. Certainly there are, there are college professors, there are general counsel that I've worked with who were great mentors to me. I think I aspire more generally to the idea of, of trying to learn from people generally. Um, uh, there's a great uh, statement in rabbinic tradition, who is wise? And the answer that's given is the person who is able to learn from all people. And I think the truth is there's so much that we can learn from everyone that we interact with. And sometimes what we learn is what not to do, frankly. Sometimes we see things that we don't admire and we say, I'd like to not make that choice. Um, but I think I think we can learn a lot from people at all, all levels of, 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 of our lives in terms of who we're interacting with. There's, there's, there are heroes among us uh, that are extraordinary. I work with somebody at McKinsey who is a world-class professional, not in my department, and has an autistic son. And I just am so filled with admiration because she has got tremendous commitments, personal commitments, and doesn't compromise on them. But at the same time, she's a world-class professional. And I, I view that person as teaching me something every time I deal with her. Um, so um, I, I think a lot of it is just being grateful and keeping your eyes and ears open. How about a life lesson that sticks with you? Look, I, I, think, I think if you are a person who believes in the idea of aspiration, you also have to believe in the idea of failure. And I think if you're reflective, you look back on your day, your week, your year, you know, your past, and you recognize a lot of failure. You recognize uh, people you, you could have helped that you didn't. Uh, you realize situations where you weren't at your best. Uh, you realize there were problems that you could have solved in ways that didn't occur to you, or perhaps you didn't have the life experience. And of course, you regret those. those are, that's part of learning the lesson of time, and that's the silver lining of experience. But I think uh, you do the best that you can. And if, you, if you're trying to develop and you're trying to really improve as a person, uh, I, I think that um, that's, that's all you can do, honestly. That's great. Thank you so much for that. Mike. So, Anne, I'm just going to remind, and Pierre, I'm going to remind everybody, this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Uh, I am Mike Hussein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, and we are in active discussion with Pierre Genton, Global General Counsel for McKinsey and Pierre, I'm uh, going to ask you to reflect on leadership when it fell short. So naming no names, no company names either. But looking back, when you have seen individuals fall short of their leadership calling, could you reflect on, on what happened? For example, were they not listeners? Or what else got in the way? Did they not have an ethical compass? But if you could just maybe walk us through an example or two when leadership should have been strong and it fell short of that, uh, that objective, uh, describe it if you would and, and help us understand why sometimes leadership is less than ideal in practice. Well, it's a great question, honestly. I, I, I think it's a, it's a complicated question because I think people are, are distinctive, people are unique. Uh, uh, I don't know that you can be entirely 
uh, generic or, or generalized about leadership. Um, I think there are a few things. I, I think one one answer that, that occurs to me in terms of my own experience is, um, you know, institutional dynamics do not always foster leadership. Institutional dynamics can foster self-interest. They can foster political behaviors, but they don't necessarily foster leadership. And I think one has to be, you know, one has to look to one's own internal landscape in terms of what you're aspiring to be as a person and as a leader irrespective of what reaction it, it engenders in the organization or from others. Um, there's a point at which you, you just have to be true to your, your own best angels, uh, regardless of the environment and regardless of what you're seeing around you in terms of uh, uh, objection or, or disapproval. I, I think that, you know, that's one, that's one thing. And I think if you, if you start to over-index on what other people are thinking or what the expectations may be, in situations where you you don't think uh, you're not comfortable with what you're seeing, that that's where it starts to go wrong uh, because you're already compromising uh, on important uh, perhaps personal values. I, I think another thing that's important, and again we see this uh, as a value in religious traditions, is um, one thing leads to another, and it doesn't. You know, as soon as you know people get comfortable with one thing, then they get comfortable with another thing, and they again they start moving down the road in in the wrong direction. So I think there's a lot of value in just building habits and building routines that actually bring out the best in ourselves, as opposed to open up the opportunity to go down a different road. And, and I'm not suggesting that I'm an exemplar of anything or that I have the answers. I'm just reflecting on my own experience and saying uh, it's difficult. You know, we operate in organizations and human uh, dynamics that that are challenging at time to time. But I do think that that asking a lot of ourselves and, and marking ourselves to market on those metrics is actually a part of, of trying to stay stay true and, 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 and trying to aspire. It's a really interesting point and to stay with it for another minute or two, uh, human shortcomings uh, is something we're very familiar with. We, we, we fight against our own shortcomings uh, as uh, well, everybody um, uh, is seeking to make the best they can of their own life course. That said, you've made the point that we hear, Anne and I have heard from many of the guests on this program, that in addition to that issue of your personal compass, it's really important to have the right tenor set at the top. It brings out the best. It avoids uh, pushing people off a cliff that is not of their own making, but they're tempted to sometimes uh, head in that direction. So that's a long-winded way, Pierre, of asking, how do you and your colleagues at McKinsey and in your previous incarnations, how do you help to set the tone of the top to bring the best out of the leadership of people who work with you and for you? What I try to do is uh, perhaps, first of all, I, I think you have to, uh, uh, I think you have to set a tone of aspiration. I've used that word a number of times, but I think you also have to be realistic. I don't think you want to put out language and put out rhetoric and put out concepts that are not grounded in reality. Uh, you have to be realistic about what you are trying to achieve, but you also have to be very clear that your aspiration is to be world-class, to be excellent as a professional, uh, to, to be stronger tomorrow than you were today. And I think you have to articulate what, you, what you're doing and what you want your team to do to get there. 
I think that's one element, uh, and I think that is a key element of leadership. Rudderlessness and uh, a sense that you don't know what direction you're going in is the worst thing from a leadership perspective. I think leaders have to articulate the direction in which they're trying to take their organization. I think the second element is not assuming that your team can or should be clones of yourself. Different people are unique and they have different gifts that, that I don't have, for example. And, and I'm amazed and inspired by ways in which people, for example, on my team, get things done, interact with clients, advance our strategic objectives as a function in ways that I could never do. I don't have those gifts. I don't have some of that charisma or some of the intelligence or some of that skill set. But thank God they do. Because once they understand, broadly speaking, what I'm trying to do with this department, they go out there and they just get it done in a remarkable, remarkable way. So I think it's a balance between uh, leading, but also putting your, your great people forward, unleashing the great people, because people are more intelligent and more capable than they're often given credit for. And if you give them the broad direction and ask them to manifest it in their own style, it's dazzling to watch. You know, just to nail that point and then hand the baton over to Ann, we had a chief executive of a very large firm on the program a couple of years ago. And he said at the end of the day, he appreciates his job is to bring the best out of everybody else. Ann, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Well, you know, you were touching on so many leadership lessons. Mike, you brought out the point of how important it is to set the tone at the top. I'm also hearing, Pierre, you talk about the importance of culture in an organization. Does the organization foster aspiration and bringing out the best? I'm also hearing the importance of complementing you, yourself with others who are different than you so that you know we are not the total leader. We, are, we all have our foibles, we have our strengths. And I'm also hearing the importance of carving a path of ethical decision-making. It's not as though we arrive at a destination and we are now and forevermore ethical. <laughs> it's really a constant, it's a journey. It, it is part of the, you know, part of the process. So I'm, I'm wondering if you uh, try to model, model that with your, uh, you know, with your colleagues, with those above you, next to you and below. I certainly try. Um... I think there are a few dimensions to how I, I, I try to do that. I think one point you made, which I couldn't agree with you more, is the concept of the more senior you get in organizations, the more you're conscious of what you are lacking, actually, in problem solving and how critical, critical it is to surround yourself with people who are diverse in every sense, people who are coming at the problem with a different lens and different life experience, uh, because they will have solutions and they'll have ideas that you won't have. Uh, I learned this years ago in, in the United States Attorney's Office when I was a federal prosecutor, which is uh, we often had law firms, major, major law firms on the other side of the table. And we were you know, young government lawyers. We had few resources. And the reason we were able to win cases was because we'd sit around in a room and get a, a bunch of people and say, I got this really difficult case or this problem. What am I going to do? And you'd walk out an hour later with a set of solutions that you never would have been able to come up with yourself, no matter how intelligent you, you might have been. So I, I think that, that that concept of really leveraging the people around you and surrounding yourself with dynamic, bright, creative people uh, is critical. I also think the, the push on diversity that we're seeing right now is 
extraordinarily positive. And I actually have a very, very broad concept of inclusion. Um, I, I think that there are extraordinary people. I mentioned my colleague with the autistic son or, or, or people who have, who, are, who have come from poverty or people who, have, who are veterans or who are disabled. Or there are just so many ways in which people have overcome or are frankly living with challenges. And the lens that they bring to how to tackle problems is extraordinarily helpful if we open ourselves to their contribution. So good. Maybe just follow up if I have a moment, Mike, okay? Yes. <laughs> All right, Pierre, I'm just wondering, we've been talking about the past and the present. As you look forward, uh, do you have aspirations for you know, yourself or your organization moving forward, maybe beyond the pandemic? We are on a, uh, a very exciting journey, uh, as I think any good legal department is, uh, going from great to greater and greater. Uh, That's how I look at it. Um, I, I think we are, I am. I, I feel privileged. Uh, I don't come to work every day. I come downstairs every day in this environment, but I, I feel enormous uh, pride and privilege to be leading uh, this wonderful, wonderful global legal function that we have at McKinsey. Um, there is so much talent and so much energy and tremendous love for the firm uh, that I have in my colleagues. And we're going to take that forward where legal is an intellectual hub. Uh, and we are doing all sorts of things at McKinsey to bring out the intellectual strengths and ideas and concepts uh, that McKinsey Legal offers. Uh, we're at the cutting edge as our firm is on so many issues. And uh, uh, we just have to keep that edge, uh, stay razor sharp, uh, stay focused on our objectives and aspire, think big, dream big, because I think with a platform like McKinsey, one of the world's really great institutions and organizations behind us, uh, the, the, the sky's the limit is how I see it. So great, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you on that. And uh, at this point, Ann and I have a custom of looking back to look forward. We often call it the after action review. We're not quite done with the action, but this is to sum up and just remind ourselves and our listeners, what, what they can really hang on to going forward. It's the whole purpose of the, of the program, your leadership in action, the ideas from you that may benefit them. So Pierre, I'm gonna actually pick on you to get this going. If, if you, in, in just one, one minute, mm -hmm. would have people remember a couple of the points you made as really vital in your view, from your experience for them, what would, what would be your response on that? I would say take a step back and assess your situation. Uh, look at what you like about it. Look at what you feel is weak or, or that you feel is not as great as it could be. And think about how and what it will take to take that situation to a completely different level where you will be able to bring to life uh, a vision of what you're trying to achieve that is much, much more impactful, much more exciting, and where you're really going to make your mark in a way that's going to have long-term impact. And I think if you start to operationalize what that's gonna look like, that may have a dimension of your own personal habits, uh, structure, organization, the talent, the diversity, all of these different dimensions, how are you going to get to that next level? And if you start operationalizing that on a realistic timetable, the energy you will unleash is extraordinary and the inspiration you'll find in yourself is extraordinary. So that would be my, my thoughts. That's great. Anne, how about you? All right, Pierre, I really, I really appreciate your notion of aiming high, personally and professionally. 
and also noting that personal and professional are not separate lanes, <laughs> but rather integrated. You know, the values and the people we surround ourselves at, with at home and at work and the lessons learned privately and professionally all, all shape a life. <laughs> and we hope a life well lived. So thank you for that. That's my takeaway. Mike, how about you? All right, well put. Uh, I've been taking notes and I have four specific points and then a more general point. I'll make it very brief because we're almost out of time here. Going way back in our discussion, the art of listening to others is the foundation for learning about the world and what we can do about it. So active listening is a phrase we often use. Pierre, you've said it very well. We need to keep that at, um, really at the top of our own personal uh, template, so to speak, and leading others. Number two, uh, we need to balance. We need to balance, uh, Anne said this, personal and professional life. We need to balance our thinking about what, what's going well with what could go wrong. So balance, I think I, I really, really <laughs> underscored that, that particular word in our commentary. Uh, number three, be aspirational and bold. Uh, there are plenty of times to be shy or reluctant, but uh, if we carry responsibility for others, don't forget you have a calling to be aspirational and bold. And then finally, on the more specific points and then a more general wrap up here, uh, diversity and inclusion. It's always been important. We're, we've been reminded in the last couple of years how very important it is, but you said it very well. That, that's, the, that's the art of working with others who are different from us. And we learn uh, from that difference if we include them and they include us in the dialogue. And here's the, I think, broader point, And I'm going to probably just close this on this. My phrasing is, uh, here from so many things you said, don't be shy. Take charge and make a difference. Take charge and make a difference. So anyway, there we are. Uh, Pierre, I want to really uh, extend uh, the appreciation from Anna and myself for your willingness to join the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. And uh, uh, just let me say once again, I want to thank you, Pierre uh, Genton, for joining us. want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. Uh, I am Mike Hussein. This is a business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. And Anne, I'm going to ask you for a coda. That is in 15 to 30 seconds, a final thought that you like listeners to really hang on to. I'm going to add, and add one myself. All right. I would say that leadership uh, and ethics, this is a journey, not a destination. And that we have to think uh, thoughtfully and reflectively along the way and be very mindful of the choices that we make. We may have an idea about ourselves, but how others see us is equally important. We want to make the world and ourselves a better place. And I would add to that, uh, given the, the experience and the act of teaching now in our own school by uh, uh, Pierre Genton, the, the ethics course, the course on responsibility in business, that uh, sometimes a little bit overlooked, but let's make certain we don't overlook it. And that is that the set of values you bring to the table, the creation, the culture you create in the enterprise, yeah, uh, both could not be more important. So thank you, everybody. Tune in next week. This is Channel 132, Leadership in Action. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 